Who knows the difference between happiness and joy? Joy stays. Joy is not a fleeting earthly emotion. It's possible to go through hell on earth and still have joy in the Lord because our joy is anchored in all that Jesus has done and is doing and will do for his people. And so we can sing about happiness, but we can also sing about something even greater, and that's joy. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I can imagine that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And my prayer is that all that God has done and is doing and will do in Christ through uh, his son, that you might lay hold of that this morning and find joy and peace. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter three. We're going to be picking back up in the book and um, we'll read through verses 13. I'll give you a few moments to get it. When you get it, feel free to say amen. All right, y'all got it. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. I'd encourage you to follow along. And um, I think the reading of Scripture is even more important than what's going to come out of my mouth as I expound it. That there's something about Scripture itself that is alive and living and powerful. And so I want us all to tune our hearts to what the Lord is saying to us right now. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the work of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This is for your glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word now. We've read it, and your spirit uh, is at work as we listen, as we ponder, as we wonder how this is all connected. My prayer is that you would speak through your servant to bring clarity to the hearts of your people. May our convictions be your convictions. May you uphold things in this text and where we are in error. May you bring about repentance through the spirit where you call us to act in accordance with this word. Would you give that to us as well, that we might not be only hearers of your word, but doers thereof as well. So help us, Jesus, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I got a chance to go <clears throat> visit my in-laws over the break and C Spire has no service where my wife lives, like absolutely none. And so uh, no internet, no social media, no phone calls, no texting. And so we resorted to watching a really good movie. I won't divulge the name of it, but man, it kept us on the end of our seats the entire movie. I mean, from the opening scene when You have this father who is trying to figure out how do you raise a son with autism and and special needs all the way to the closing 30 seconds of the movie. It was one great multi-layered mystery. Like, I mean, at every point we were trying to kind of keep up with what the director was doing. And finally, man, it was it was absolutely masterful. Right. We, We stayed there. Kids, my wife. And just we were all on the edge of our seats the entire movie. There was something about the mystery that kept being unfolded scene by scene 
that, that kept us locked in, I'd imagine that many of you probably received gifts for Christmas and probably very few of you received unwrapped gifts for Christmas. That there is something about wanting a gift and on the other hand, wanting that to be a mystery, wanting wanting that person to 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 wrap it so that you don't know what it is and you shake it and you listen for it. But then there is this part in which you unopen it so that you can see what's inside of it. My guess is that if you propose as a man, then your fiance probably knew that you were going to propose. She probably even knew that you wanted to get married. But my guess is that you didn't tell her all the details. You didn't tell her what kind of ring you were going to buy or you didn't tell her when you were going to propose. You didn't tell her how you were going to propose. You wanted her to be a part of the mystery. Right. There's something about human nature where we're drawn into books and movies and stories. And there's a mystery about it that, that locks us in. And the case that I want to make to you today is the reason that is there. Is because you were made for a deeper mystery. You were made to track with an author who's writing a better story. You were made to track with a movie that's being displayed, that has conflict and plots and it has a turns and it has rising tension and resolve. You the, the reason we like these things in other spheres of life is because deep down inside we like that our hearts were made for it. Only the, the director is God. The writer is God. And it's not make believe. It's reality. That what we're going to look at in our text this morning, and I want to show you these four ideas just so that you don't think I'm making this this plot line stuff up. That in our text, you'll notice this idea of a a, a planned purpose. Right. So just think with me there and you, you see part of it right there in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose. So stop right there. Don't don't read more. You also see it in in verse nine and to bring to life for everyone. What is the plan? Right. So you get this idea, right? You have a a purpose and a plan that God is orchestrating. So that's the first thing. What we're going to talk about is not haphazard. This is according to the agenda and plan and work of God. That's the first thing. The second thing you see is that, that it's veiled in mystery. Right. And you get that in in four different ways in the text. Paul uses this idea of mystery. Look at verse three, how the mystery was made known to me. Look at verse four. When you read in this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery. Look at verse six, this mystery. Look at verse nine, the mystery. So in other words, you got God with this planned purpose agenda, but who also does something amazing, right? He hides things. And look at where Paul says God hides these things. Look at the end of verse nine. This plan of this mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So think about that image. God is purposing and planning things in Jesus. But God hides the creator. God who created all things also takes liberty to hide what he's doing. And where does he hide it? It says in himself. In other words, if we're going to figure out what he's talking about, he himself is going to have to unveil it and bring it out of his hiding. And that's exactly what you see happening in our text. This whole idea of of making known. Paul says through me, though, I am the very least of the apostle. It's God's plan in verse nine to bring to light. You see these words about revealing, right? Verse four, when you read in this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery. You get this idea that he wants to reveal things. And that's what you have going on in the text. That when God created the heavens and the earth, that was not the only thing God created. He also had something up his sleeve that he has been working towards from all time. And now through Paul, he's saying, now, here it is. Here's the mystery. It's not haphazard. Now, this is a side note. I want you as a believer and us as believers to just know, right, that this is the norm. That if if mystery is not a part of your faith. You need to go back and reexamine Christianity. That if you actually think that we as humans 
can get into the mind and heart of God to the degree that we know everything about him, that we know every single thing that he's up to and always doing and will do and why he does. That is not biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, if you sort of watch the Old Testament, you watch men like Joseph who were sold into slavery by his own brothers. And in that moment, that makes no sense. And it's not until later on in Genesis, right, where Joseph sees at, at that point, he sees what you intended for evil. I now see that God meant it for good. You remember when when God goes to Abraham and God goes to Abraham, you're going to have a child. And he also says, shall I hide from my servant Abraham what I'm about to do? And the Lord chooses of his own good pleasure to let Abraham in on what was going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord chooses to let him in. You remember when, when Samuel is going to anoint the next king of Israel? You know what he did? He went to, to, to Jesse's house. Give me the king. Where's the king? The Lord told me your king is here. And he starts from the oldest son and works his way down. He says, wait a minute. What? What? His mind is blown because the Lord had another mystery. And the mystery was the king of Israel is not going to be strong in stature. He's going to be a shepherd boy right there. The last person out of the family that any one of you would have chosen. You see that if you walk with the Lord, you and I will encounter mystery. You've encountered it, right? When you could not conceive and all of a sudden, bam, you have a child. You encounter mystery when you have children and all of a sudden you can't and doctors can't explain it. You encounter mystery when, when you write it off that I will never get married and then the next month somebody shows up and you're married within six months, right? You write mystery off when you have grown up as a little girl walking with princess dresses on and it's your dream to be married. And then one day the Lord whispers to you, to your soul, if you never marry, I'm enough. If you go back to your 15 year old self or your 21 year old self, that makes no sense in the world. But in your 35 year old self, you realize the Lord is enough. That's mystery. That some of you have gone to school to major in this and this is your life's work. And all of a sudden, when you're 45, you want to quit your job and go do something else that you never thought you'd be doing. It's mystery, right? What does that kind of stuff come from? I know it's a new year. And I know we're saying all of our New Year's resolutions. I want to lose weight. I want to work out more. I want to read more. I'm for all of that, right? But do, do you remember what Jesus told the disciples when they were talking about what they were going to be doing tomorrow and the next day? Jesus says, do not say what you're going to do tomorrow. You don't know if, if that's going to happen. He says, rather say what? If the Lord, what? Wills it. What is Jesus doing? He's trying to get the disciples to leave room for mystery in their life. You can't plan out your life. You can't control all the events. Leave mystery and leave, leave room for mystery for your God to show up and do something. And your our obligation, it is to plan. Many are the plans of the men, but the outcome is in the hand of the Lord. You get that? What is God saying? I've created you to leave room for mystery. Things you don't know, things you can't plan, things that will surprise you with what I do when I show up. That's a part of walking and following the Lord. Now, what you see in our text is God reveals one of his beautiful mysteries. There are billions of mysteries, right? There are billions, right? I, I'm, I'm, I've concluded that there is so much about the Lord. There's so much about death. There's so much about heaven. There's so much about my own sin and my own heart and how it works and how it operates that I can't exhaust that. Right. But the Lord does. He is kind enough in his goodness to, to reveal to us some mysteries. And today he pulls out a beautiful one. The first mystery that he is the, the, the mystery that he reveals to us in the text is the church. The church. That's the mystery that's being revealed in this passage. 
You know, Paul says that this mystery has been hidden for ages, right? Look at verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles by the Spirit. Look at verse 4. When you read into this, you can perceive into my insight into the mystery of Christ. Look at verse 6. This mystery, right? You get this idea that, that, that Paul, and he goes on to say that I was made a minister. I was made a, a, a champion of the mystery, not because of anything I've done, I, I, didn't, I didn't work my way up and then God says, you've earned. He says, no, I was the leastest of the leastest. That's what he says kind of in the Greek. He uses really bad language. He says, no, I, I did not deserve to, uh, to, to, be, to be told this. I did not deserve to know what this mystery was, but God chose me as the leastest of them all to reveal this great mystery. Well, what is the mystery? It's the church. And you see it in, 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 in several different ways, right? And here's the part about the text. You kind of have to figure out what's the mystery. You see it in verse three, how the mystery was made known. OK, so now it's revealed. Look at verse four. You can perceive into my insight into the mystery of Christ. And so somehow this mystery is going to be championed by or belong to or be associated with the work of Christ. Look at verse six. The mystery is that the Gentiles are the fellow heirs. We'll come back to that. Look at verse Nine, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. So what is the mystery? I think you get it. I think you get it in a roundabout way in verse 10. It's the church. He's building up the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. It's the church that through the church, the church. Now, when I say the church, here's what I, where I don't want us to go. I'm making the case to you that the mystery that was hidden for ages it is the church, the body of Christ. That's the mystery that God had up his sleeve from the beginning of time. It's the church. Now, when we hear the church, here's what I don't want us to think about. I don't necessarily want us to bring that definition down to Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is a part of a bigger church, the universal church, the global church, the historical church. So in that sense, I don't want us to bring it down to this level. And I don't want you to think I'm talking about Redeemer exclusively when I use that language. And it's also not limited to a building, right? Because I think in our day, we tend to say, well, how many people go to your church? And what, what we're really asking is, how many people come in the building, right? When Paul uses this language of the church, he has something else in mind. What he has in mind is a, a group of people who were in darkness, who were in bondage, who were blind, who were by nature children of wrath, who were hostile to the Lord. He's talking about real people. This is who you were. You were in darkness. You were in the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he by his sovereign hand reaches and he grabs people out of their darkness and out of their blindness and he brings them to himself. And so they are no longer alienated. They can see. And the vehicle he, does, he uses to do the bringing is the preaching of the gospel. That's why Paul talks about it. He uses these things interchangeably of this gospel. I was made a minister, but the gospel is actually serving the mystery. You get it? The preached word of Paul is actually serving the building of the church. In other words, how will God take people out of darkness and bring them to himself? It is through the preaching of the good news. It is through hearing you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Hearing that another has come to obey in your place and his name is Jesus and there is salvation in no other name under the heavens outside of him. It's believing that he came to obey every point of the law in outward obedience and with the intent and posture of his heart. And then he is rewarded with death on a cross. And why would he die on a cross? Because he who knew no sin was being made sin for us that we might become the righteousness, the righteous ones of God. And we respond to that call with faith and repentance. We're turning from our ignorance and turning from our blindness because the spirit has already opened our eyes and has enabled us to see and lay hold of Christ. And we run to the cross. 
and we are reconciled to our Father, no longer alienated. That is one part of the church, the called out ones. Here's the other side of that, though, that when God saves you and I, he's not doing it so that we would only have a personal relationship with him. He's bringing us all into his fold. And so there is reconciliation, not just with man and God, but there is reconciliation with man and man. And Jesus Christ stands at the center as our peace. That's the church called out of darkness into the light of the Lord, along with the other people who have heard and responded to the gospel. Right now, we need buildings and we need an institution and we need committees and we need all these other things to support. To support and undergird and enable the church to be the church, but the church is the church on account of what God has done. Right. That's God's mystery. And he starts to unpack it. Right. Well, what do we know about the church? The first thing we see is that there is diversity in God's church. And Paul, see, we have a, a whole bunch of different ways to categorize people. Right. We do it when you take a census. Well, how much education you got? Right. We do it by income. Well, how much money you make and you make. We do it by zip code. Well, where do you live? We do it by your family of origin. Are, are you African-American? Are you Caucasian? Are you, I mean, just we do all we have all of these ways in which we splinter people up. And in Paul's day, they had two, right? Either you were a Jew, which meant that you were out of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Right. That's it. Or you were not a Jew and you were a Gentile. Right. You were, I mean, that, that's it. Like in his day, that's it. That, that, those are the big two categories. And what you see in the text is what Paul is saying. I'm suffering for the Gentiles. Look at verse six. The mysteries that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So you start to see that what's happening is God is moving in a miraculous and mighty way over here with the non-Israelites and he's engrafting them in. And so what you get right here as God, as Paul is unpacking the church it's diversity. It's just important. This is not a country club, right? This is not like any other institution in the world. There is diversity right here in the body, and we should expect that. But the question that Paul pushes, well, what is the status of the latecomers to the party, right? You got God working through Jews for thousands of years. Then what is the status of the latecomers, right? You know, Jesus does this sweet parable about workers in the vineyard. And they go out at different times of day. And at the end of the day, guess who gets what? They all get the same amount of money. And guess what? It's not about the money. It's about grace. It's about grace that when you are, are in the vineyard of the Lord, it's an equal playing field. That's what Paul is saying is when the Gentiles do come in, there, there is immense unity. He says it three different ways. He says that they are fellow heirs. This goes back to our adoption language in Ephesians 1, that when God adopts the Gentiles into the body, they aren't coming in as second-class citizens. You're coming in as a rightful heir to the throne. You come in with all the rights and privileges as if you were born in that home. That's what God is saying. It says Gentiles are members of one body, right? So look, look at it in, in verse 6, members of the same body. There is, in, in God's economy, there, there, there is not this black church and this white church and this Latino church, that there, this idea that God has a unique way to work with a unique set of people groups and we need to divide ourselves and splinter up into our own, whatever we want to call it, that's foreign to the Bible. We're in one body. One body where Christ is center. Right. You see it again, that they are partakers of the promises. So the promises, the land, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will pour my spirit out upon you that, 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 that the Gentiles don't get an inferior portion. Right. God is saying, no, you're late to the party and you get you have all the rights and privileges. As if you were born here. Unity, immense unity in the church, which is God's mystery, diversity 
and also unity. Those two things go together. As a matter of fact, he's going to unpack unity in chapter four and we'll get to it then. Now, why does he do this? He just said a lot of this in Ephesians 2. I mean, if you go back, I won't, I won't bore you with it, but if you go back and read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he's not saying anything new. Now, the question that we have to ask is why would Paul say the same thing a different way? Because we need to hear it over and over and over and over again. He's not repeating this because he forgot his train of thought. He's repeating this because he knows human nature and how we work and how we operate. That I'm going to say it again a different way, just in case you were snoozing the first time I said it. God's church is united around the person and work of Jesus. God's church is his beautiful, 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 beautiful mystery presented to us right now. God's church is immensely diverse. It should be diverse. And God's church is unified. And so when you, that, I think that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, there's enough love to go around. There's enough status to go around, that, that your status is Jesus. You can't improve upon that. That your righteousness is in Christ. You, you can't improve upon that. That the gift of the Holy Spirit, it will be poured out in equal measure upon all of God's children. You can't improve upon that. That scarcity is not a vocabulary in the father's family. There is grace and mercy and love and affection to go around. So stop thinking that you have to posture and earn it, that you have done something that makes you better. This is an equal playing field at the cross. That's what Paul is saying. That God's beautiful design was that the church would be this multicolored, multi-class, multi-cultured, multi-socioeconomic, multi-linguistic, beautiful family. That's God's intention from the beginning. Here's a few things. If, if, if Paul goes to great lengths to say that this is the mystery. Think about the image, that God has been hiding this in himself, which is the church united to himself through his son. If this is the mystery, this is the turn in the movie that helps you make sense of the entire movie, right? That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, the mystery of the church, the church as God's own people reconciled to him and to each other. We can say a lot of things about the church, but one thing we can't say, it's, it's unimportant. You know, say a lot of things about the church, but the attitude that it's unimportant, that it doesn't matter, that goes against the sovereign working of God who has hidden this mystery and is now saying, here it is right here. So on some level, right, I'm going to challenge some of you who aren't affiliated with the church, and I'm not trying to sell you on Redeemer, right? I get that on the one hand, I would love for you to be here with us in this fellowship, but I also know that Redeemer is a part of a bigger church. And I'm going to say this to you, and I mean it with all of my heart. If you're not in a local church where the gospel of grace is preached and where you are living in community with God's people, you are doing a great disservice to your own soul. You are. Because God says so. You just are. That if this is his mystery, then your life will be miserable apart from it. Being really honest. And if the church is God's place where he is reconciling people to himself across distinctions, might that be something that we pray for? And long for, not just in our own body, but across the world. That's the mystery. The second thing you see in the text is that the mystery of the church is revealed, but the mystery of the church is also resisted. You would think that if God has been hiding this, 
for thousands of years, and he finally says, okay, baby, here it is right here. You would think that in our humanity, we would want to lay hold of it, esteem it, and value it, and get behind it. That's what you would think, but the Bible is real. Here's what you see about this. When Paul has been, is preaching and talking and, and, and bearing witness about the mystery, do not forget where he is when he wrote the letter. Look at what he says in verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner. You get that? You see it in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. Now, the question that we have to ask is, why is Paul in prison? Because he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And here's what I mean. I want to encourage you to go back and to uh, actually read Acts 21 and Acts 22. Paul is caught between this rock and a hard place that on the one hand, the Jewish leaders of his day, right? The Jewish leaders of his day, if you go back and read Acts 21 and 22, they're tracking with him. He's, right, he, he's delivering this eloquent oratorical speech, and it, and it actually says, up to this word, they listen to him. And then what happened? And, and Paul, this is what happened. So he's preaching, and, and it says, up to this point, they listened. And then he said one little thing. It said, look at what he says. Up to this word, they listened. And then he said, Jesus told me to go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. And when they heard this, they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. You hear that? The Jewish leaders are tracking with Paul. You talk about the called out ones, amen. You talk about getting together on the, day, on the Sabbath day, amen. You talk about reading the Torah, amen. You talk about God being for us, amen. You talk about God taking away our guilt, amen. And the moment he says, and it goes to the Gentiles, oh, go, let's get this dude off the earth, right? <laughs> and so they wanted to kill him. So he's stuck between that. They like the, the, the institution of the church in theory. It's good to be gathered together. It's good to be sitting under the word. But then the moment you say that it must include other people not like me, that's, man, we got to get rid of that guy, right? They're for the idea, but they're not for the fullness of the institution, right? So they, he appeals to Nero. He appeals to Rome. And all of a sudden he gets to Rome He's going to be beheaded. You know why he's beheaded? Because if you if you place your stake in the ground that the Lord of the heavens is the one true God, then what you're declaring, Nero, you're not God. When you start to declare that these are my people across racial and cultural and socioeconomic lines, then what you're pushing against is the whole way the Roman system worked. When you start saying we will gather in houses to worship the one true God and not go into your temples and lay into your prostitutes, now you're going to bring persecution on yourself. So Paul is stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Jews, they like the institution, but they don't like the vision and who it includes. And Nero, as a king in the whole Roman system, they don't like it because you're pushing against everything we stand for. You see? That's why he's in prison. The Jews did not behead Paul. The Roman government did. But Paul was appealing his case to the Roman government because he could not find home with the Jewish leaders. Now, why did he not find home with the Jewish leaders? And why did the Roman government not like him? Because when God pulled out the mystery and showcased to the world that this is what I'm doing, creator, Wanted to be the created people, wanted to take the place of the creator and wanted God to push that back up your sleeve. No, thank you, sir. We don't like what you're doing. And therefore, we will eliminate whoever is a mouthpiece for you. You see how it works? That's the indictment upon humanity. It's an old indictment. When God pulls out the church and free grace through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, that calls us into fellowship with one another around him, that when God pulls that out and says, this is the major thing I'm doing, humanity says, no, thank you, sir. 
Why don't you put that back up on your sleeve? We don't want your church and we don't want your gospel and we don't want what the gospel means for my life. No, thank you, sir. That's the indictment. We don't want to be creatures. We want to write the story and we want to control the narrative. And God says, no, it's not true. You can't do it. Because of that, because of Paul, the resistance from the Jewish leaders and the resistance from the Roman government, do we really think that our day has changed? When God holds out the church, what it is and what it believes and what it calls us to, haven't you heard people say, no, get together on a Sunday morning, bro? No, no, thank you. I'm going to sleep in. That's my, that's my day for me. Man, Uncle Sam already get 40% of my money. You telling me that I'm supposed to also give another some more money away? No, no, no thank you, man. I, I work too hard for what I got. You mean I'm supposed to go and, and listen to somebody talk about something that don't always make me feel good? You know what I'm saying? Like, no, no thank you, man. I'm going to turn this on over here and read these, these books for powerful motivational living. This is what I'm down to, right? The, it's the same. That at the heart of that logic is I want to be on the throne. That I don't like the institution of the church because I love myself and my freedom too much. And don't we have people? They like the institution, the idea of the church. But the moment you include people who are poor, who don't have what you have, who don't worship like you worship, who don't know enough information, who might vote differently than you vote, who might live in a different part of town. The moment that you tell me that the kingdom of God is for them and for us all equally, no thank you. I want to stay in my little safe corner with people that will never challenge me. No thank you. And so on an institutional level, you might be for it, but you're not for the full vision, the grand vision of the church as God has designed it. And so we do the same thing in our day and age. We just do it. It's human nature. You put it out there. No, thank you, sir. Have you noticed our membership vows here at Redeemer? When I ask you how you vote, when I ask you how much money you make, when I ask you where you live, when I ask you what you eat, when I ask you how you educate your kids. Our membership vows are really simple. Are you a sinner? In the sight of a holy God. Yes, sir. I am, sir. Is there salvation found in anyone else outside of Christ? No, it's not. Do you promise to study and promote the peace and purity of this body? You notice how much stuff we don't bring in membership? It's because we have realized the main thing must stay the main thing. And that's saving faith in Christ. And all these other things that we tend to push in the middle and say this is a main thing, we're going to say no. We can have diversity around those things and unity around the main things. I imagine that in a room this size, that on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being Pastor L, I love the church. I've had people from the church love me when I was diagnosed with cancer. I've had people from the church to come around me when life was hard. I've had people speak truth to me when I was struggling in my faith. That I've had people pursue me and pray for me. That in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at times in the journey, that the Christ that's in my brother's heart and mouth is stronger than the Christ that's in me. And what he's saying is there are at times when all of our faith will be, it will shrink and will be weakened. But the joy of having a brother or a sister around you to speak the truth back into you, that some of us in this room right now on a scale from one to 10, you're on 10 and you have vowed wherever you go, and as long as you're on God's green earth, if God takes you to Montana or Manhattan, you will be a part of a local church. And I want to say amen. Right. And I'd also imagine that there are people on the other end of the spectrum. Some of us are probably 50 50. Man, some days I feel like yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. All right. You know, 
And I'd imagine there's people over here on the zero side. You loathe the church. You've been hurt by the church. And I want to say two things. First, your accusations that we're hypocrites. We are. All of us on a functional level, we know more gospel than we live out. All of us on a functional level, we see your sin faster than we see our own. And I want to just go ahead and put it out there. You're right. Brian Taylor has this saying that being in the church, it's like we're all porcupines, right? And the more you draw near to one another, you realize that you got quills on you and it, it's going to hurt, right? That this, this idea that this is a perfect place where we can draw near to people and never hurt one another and never disappoint one another, that is far into the Bible. We're still sinners. And if that's you, if, if you have real serious church hurt in there, I want to say, I'm sorry. We're imperfect. We're still works in progress. We're saved by grace. We're hypocrites, but we're hypocrites that Jesus loves and that he's died for. And he calls us out of our hypocrisy and out of our sin to endeavor new obedience day in and day out. And maybe in a year we'll be farther along than we were this year and maybe not. But God's grace is at work in the hearts of imperfect people. It's not that your hurt isn't real. I think your expectations for saints are just too high. But I also think there's a warning in the passage that if our knee jerk reaction is to protest everything church, is to be antagonistic and pessimistic towards everything church, I do think we're flirting with danger. And let me show you why, because in this passage, notice what Paul says through the church in verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, Paul is setting us up for something and don't miss this. That phrase rulers and authorities in heavenly places it's going to come back up in Ephesians. And guess where it comes up in Ephesians chapter six. And when Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, make the connection that one of the things that God is doing is putting the church on display in front of Satan and in front of his evil demons and the, the very people who brought antagonism into the world that when Satan calls Adam and Eve to sin and fall and all of the divisiveness and racism and classism and sexism and all the other isms that are in their world, God says they are held accountable. But I'm doing something new. What I'm going to do is put my church, my church through it, through the very existence of it, through seeing diversity and unity and shalom and peace and wholeness and grace and forgiveness, I'm doing something that's bigger than just what you see. I'm putting the church on display for Satan to see and for his minions to see and for the demons to see that what you have meant for evil I mean for good. What you have tried to divorce and to separate and to put asunder, no, I'm lifting it up and through the church, I'm showing you my wisdom. So here's the question that we have to ask. If our posture for the church is more akin to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places who sow division, you know what God is saying? You got to repent of that. Because you're actually siding with the enemy. The church has been revealed, God's great mystery. The church has been resisted. And the church, the mystery of the church, it brings responsibilities. This is where God's mystery is different from all of the mysteries, right? 
We can watch a Sherlock's home. We can watch a really good movie. And that mystery does not call me to do anything with it. We've just been entertained in that moment. We've gotten that itch to be entertained and we've, we, it's been scratched. And so we go on to do life. But this mystery is not like all those other mysteries. This mystery comes with it and it brings responsibility. And you see it. The, an important question to ask is when Paul was made aware of the mystery of the church, what happened to his life? Verse three, he became a writer of grace, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And I have written about it. You see the response? It's been revealed. And now let me write about it. Look at verse two. Assuming that you've heard the stewardship, I become a stewardship of grace. Look at verse seven of this gospel. Remember how I told you the gospel, the good news, it serves the mystery, right? The gospel, the preaching of the gospel is for the building of the church and building of the mystery. And so when Paul says of this gospel, I was made a minister, that word right there is a deacon. I was made a deacon of the, min of the ministry, of the deacon of the mystery. That's what he's saying. I became a servant of it. Think at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least, this grace was given to preach to the Gentile, right? I'm going to open my mouth. And so you get this image that this, this, this mystery of the church, it totally arrested this man. I'm going to write about it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to preach about it. And you know what? I'm also going to go to prison and suffer for it. And that's why you see for this reason in verse one, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. You see that? Look at the end of it. I am in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This idea of what God is doing in and through the church it didn't go in one ear and out the other. It arrested all of him. The Lord now has my hand and I will write. The Lord now has my mouth and I will talk about it. The Lord now has my freedom and I will be imprisoned, even if it means that the mystery stays alive and the hope of the gospel continues to be proclaimed. Where would Paul get such a crazy idea that I go to prison so that you can get glory? That I give up my freedom so that you can gain your freedom in Christ? Where would he get such a crazy idea from the cross? The cross of Christ. This is a cruciformed, cross-centered life that the Lord Jesus suffered, right, for us, that we might be free. The Lord Jesus came from on high and he came to obey that we who are stuck down low in the mire and clay of, the, of this life might be taken up to glory. This is the way of the cross. When the gospel starts to work in our lives, it makes us and it compels us to suffer. That's what the mystery does when we fully grasp what God is doing through the church. We'll suffer a song we don't like. We'll suffer people that irritate us. We'll just we'll, we'll die to some things if it means that through my dying to self, we might continue to hear and be a part of the message of grace moving. And so many of us in this moment aren't suffering to the point of death. And it might be in our future. But the mystery does call us to persevere and to suffer. When others want us to take our focus off the Bible, we say, no, this is our authority. When others want us to proclaim that you have to have Jesus plus something else, we say no, faith alone in Christ is sufficient. When others want us to segregate based on race or class, we say no, the other is just as much as a brother and sister of mine as people who look like me. 
when others want to say the churches is an exclusive place for current believers, we say no, the good news of grace must be shared. We must continue to engage outsiders and make rooms and plan for them. When the world says, when the church disappoints you, just leave and go find somewhere else, we say no, we're going to endure and work through it and preserve the bond of unity. When the world says a church is a place to go, we say no, the church is a family to be a part of. When the world says fill up your calendar with all sorts of things you love, that your kids love, and that your bosses love, we say no, we're going to make room for the body of Christ. When the world says you've worked all day, you don't need to go and give anything else to anyone else. We say, no, this is the way of the cross. When the world says, keep all of your money and 110% maximize everything, we say, no, the way of the cross is that we give as we have been freely received from the Lord. Do you see that if we're going to follow the Lord into this beautiful mystery, you're going to suffer? Don't say no to some things. You're going to die to some things. That others might live and find life. I'm going to end with this quote by Spurgeon. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. I, if, I had ever, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found a perfect church, I would have spoiled it. For it would not have been perfect once I showed up. Still, and perfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord. Notice that. First given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, Give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, then it is right for everyone to refrain from membership in the church. And if everyone refrains from the membership in the church, then the testimony of God will be lost in our world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is a nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished until they grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you, and we thank you for time and your word. I pray now that you would bless us as we eat from your table. May you nourish our souls, not just with the words that we've heard, but also with the sacraments that we are about to partake of together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.